to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance? Oh, it's going very well. Couldn't be better, actually. How are you, Tim? I'm doing great, Lance. This episode, as you know, is part of Private Investigations for the Missing, which is a nonprofit that we are on the board of. Check it out at investigationsforthemissing.org. And this is the second case that Private Investigations for the Missing has taken on. Now, this case is being worked on by our good friend and former police chief, Lou Barry, and it is a case that is dated back to November of 2001, and it is the unsolved murder of Dean Webster. That's right. Dean Webster was a 28-year-old male, and he was found deceased outside of his residence. This unsolved murder took place in Rochester, Vermont. There was evidence at the scene as well as results from an autopsy that confirm Mr. Webster was the victim of a homicide. But it is unsolved. And so, Lance, this is an unsolved homicide, which is not a missing persons case. Right, but it does represent the template in which private investigations for the missing wants to approach cases. The cases come to us. We vet them, and our investigators who are working with us, like Greg Overacker or Lou Barry, they will decide which ones they think could be solvable and something that they can put this template to and show that it works as a uh, as a system for bringing resolution to something. We're almost there with the Erica Franilich case. And in this interview, Lou even says this is a very solvable case. So we might as well take that that format that we're trying to showcase and we're, we're trying to raise money for and, and apply it to this. So this is the first step in the investigation, actually. Uh, we connected with the Webster family a little bit, not us, but Lou. And so, the, uh, again, this is part of that first step is doing a podcast and putting out some information. So if you know any information in this case, it is very important to turn that tip over. You can email private investigations for the missing at investigations for the missing at gmail.com. There's also a Dean Webster specific page and Facebook page now as well. Who killed Dean Webster? But you can also submit a tip to the Vermont State Police by texting keyword V, as in Vermont, tips to 274637. And you did say that this is the first step in the process, and I think that is a very unique position for all of us to be in and really to witness how it all starts. You'll hear Lou literally say, I don't know about this, and I don't know about this. I know about this and this. So you get to experience the investigative technique and the investigative process that he's going through. We're going to have him back on again. We'll hopefully have family members on and maybe some reporters who reported on it. And you get to see it right from the beginning and you get to hear it from a media standpoint, an investigator standpoint, a family standpoint. And hopefully by the time we're done, we'll have some conclusion here and some resolution to this unsolved murder. That would be great. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really unique experience. You get to see the investigation right from the beginning from where they're taking over. And it's not really going to sound like a normal podcast episode where you hear the whole story because there's not much there. What we just talked about was basically the starting point and Lou took over from there. And these episodes are going to be aired on both of our channels, that being Missing Maura Murray and Crawl Space, because we want to spread the awareness for this case as far and wide as possible. And this will not replace this week's Missing Maura Murray episode. Actually, we're going to do a new episode with uh, Laura Rist regarding the disappearance of Trenny Gibson, and that is coming on Friday, June 26th. Laura once again brings to the table more details of Trenny Gibson's disappearance. She is one of the most thorough citizen 
detectives we've ever worked with. I can't speak highly enough about her. Okay, everybody. Thanks a lot. Make sure to follow Private Investigations for the Missing social pages. And don't forget the Dean Webster, Who Killed Dean Webster Facebook group. And check out all of our shows at crawlspace-media.com. are being joined now by private investigator Lou Barry. Lou, how's it going today? Oh, wonderful. How about yourself? Doing great. We're doing just great. Thank you so much for joining us, taking time out of your extremely busy day that you, uh, you always seem to have busy days. Every time we talk to you, you're always looking into something. You have some case going on. You're like this behind the scenes, like guy behind the curtain, like the, 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 the man <laughs> behind the man. Yeah, so sometimes it seems that way, I guess. Well, you are a former police chief. Can you give a quick uh, bit of background for anyone who doesn't know you? We're familiar with you because of Brianna Maitland's case and private investigations for the missing and Bruce's connection with you. Can you give a little uh, background for anyone who's hearing your voice for the first time? Uh, Sure. I spent um, about 11 years down on the Cape um, with the uh, police department down there. I started as a patrolman and then uh, became a detective. And then ultimately a sergeant and then um, moved up to the western part of the state, uh, became a police chief. I stayed as chief for 24 years, uh, retired. Um, I started teaching in college classes back in 1990 as an adjunct, and I'm still teaching in a couple different places. Teach a lot at the police academy. Uh, After I retired, I got involved in um, private investigating uh, kind of almost accidentally. A, A friend of mine had filed a civil suit and needed an investigator. So I helped her out. That was a sexual assault case uh, and um, did the investigation for her, located some witnesses, et cetera. And she had a pretty good um, settlement in federal court out of it. After that, I did a couple more cases like that for different individuals and then had a kind of a low period. Uh, I was familiar with Brianna Maitland's case. So at the time I was working with a young lady and we started met with Bruce and started looking at that case and um, got involved in cold cases that way. So since Bruce started the nonprofit, uh, Private Investigators for the Missing, I've been you know trying to help out as best I can with, with that type of case. We did the I worked with Greg on the Franowich case, which I think you've done a show on, and we have helped out a kid out of Texas on um, Brandon Lawson's case. And this case here came to my attention via uh, a journalist who had done a quite a bit of very thorough research on a case and reached a dead end and reached out to see if perhaps PI for the missing could help out. Okay. And now this case is a little bit different though, because private investigations for the missing primarily deals with missing persons cases. And this isn't exactly that, is it? No, it isn't. And it, you know, it is a little bit of a reach uh, relative to what PI for the missing was founded for. However, uh, in a way, it isn't. I mean, it's, I think certainly in a case of, of like Brianna and many of the other cases, the, the fact that a person is missing, you know, realistically, you kind of figure that they, they're deceased. Um, in this case, we just know that at the beginning, that's all. Um, other than that, it's, it's very similar in that there's uh, not a lot to go on. It's been investigated thoroughly and, you know, there's no... No hard evidence at this point. But before we get into the details of this case, I just want to uh, talk a little bit further about 
private investigations for the missing, focusing on missing people. And you gave a great answer. This isn't so much a missing person. It's an unsolved murder. Uh, it's still the same template that that we're always striving for. We, we see a really good example of that with uh, Erica Franelich's case and the work that uh, you and Greg have done with that. Uh, so there, I feel like there's a, a template that is always being fine-tuned, especially in the early days of this nonprofit. And this case here, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like this is a really good application of that template. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, the main premise is how, trying to help families get answers. And by providing them with with a resource, specifically a private investigator, that they just can't uh, themselves afford to do. So, you know, in that sense, it, it, there is really no difference in the cases. And, you know, this particular case is almost 20 years old and there's been, you know, as far as we know, publicly, no, no progress on it. Okay. And we are talking about the murder of Dean Webster in November of 2001. Do you want to go into it chronologically, how it how it happened, or do you want to talk about what type of person Dean was? Well, uh, actually, you know, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, Dean uh, grew up in in that area, in Rochester area. And, uh, Rochester is a um, small rural village, your typical, I think, Vermont. But you picture if you picture a Vermont town, it's kind of tucked away in the Green Mountains. And, at one time was, uh, you know, known for, for, for mills and things. And now it's kind of an artsy community from what I guess, gather near the ski areas. Um, farming certainly played a big role in the, in the history of the town. I think now is about 1,100 people. Not sure how many were there back in, in 2001. Um, but it's kind of, a, you know, a quaint little village. Um, there's no established police department that's covered by the state police and so it's, you know, kind of a, again, a charming little town. And, and Dean, uh, like I said, grew up in the area. He hunted, he fished, he, you know, he was an outdoorsman. From what I'm told, very well liked, easy going, easy to get along with. And he'd been working for a, a, some type of, a, I think, a, a plumbing support, a company or something, doing installations. And he had been injured um, a few months prior, hurt his shoulder, was out on workman's comp. And um, he was building a house. Uh, so he took that time as an opportunity to kind of get some work done in his house. Uh, that, you know, was where he was at uh, early November of 01. And so what ended up happening? Well, it's, um, there's a lot of unknowns, still a lot of questions, I think, but uh, so I can run you through the scenario as I know it um, at this point. There had been a, some type of an event the week before and he had loaned an article of clothing to some young ladies. It was cold, I guess, and I loaned them a sweater or something. And a couple of the girls tried to return it. This was on the, I believe, the, either the 15th or the 16th. The dates are a little unclear. Um, and they, they got to his house, which is on a road called Sky Hollow Road, which, uh, if you look on a map, is um, extremely uh, uh, rural. Uh, maybe four or five houses scattered uh, on the length of the road, um, not really that close to each other at all. And he was building his house there. So they, they went to the house to return the, the item and um, lights were on. Uh, Dean had two dogs. One was a Rottweiler who was very uh, aggressive, I guess, that was chained up. Uh, and the second was a boxer who was running loose. And the boxer was very aggressive. Uh, in other words, the girls were afraid to get out of the car because of the way the dog was 
acting because he was loose. Uh, lights were on in the house. Door was open. Um, no sign of Dean. Uh, so they left. And this is where it gets a little confusing date-wise. Uh, apparently the next day, which is the 16th, they returned again. Although there's some indication that perhaps um, the first day they went was on the 16th and the second day was the 17th. It's really confusing. But they went back to second time um, later in the afternoon. Uh, I think it was getting dark out or was dark out. And um, again, same scenario. This time the the dog was so aggressive it was biting the tires of the car. Huh. So they they left and they telephoned a close friend of uh, Dean's, uh, the name of Gibbs, and um, he met the girls, went to the house, and he found Dean uh, on the side of the house, which was you know from the driveway you, you wouldn't be able to see that. Um, uh, and he was obviously deceased. They called the, the uh, state police and they responded. This was about 6.20 p.m. Uh, on November 17th, 2001. So he might have been dead for up to three days at that point or two days? I would say the earliest could have been the 15th. I believe they had him seen on the afternoon of the 16th. But that doesn't necessarily add up with what the girls had seen. So that, you know, without having done any investigation on this at all yet, um, it's kind of still up in the air as to, you know, what, when exactly he had been um, he had been shot. He was shot then. Yeah, he was shot to death. Um, again, we don't have the autopsy report as of this writing. Um, but so where the, the wounds were, how many, what caliber, all that is still kind of a unknown uh, that is, information has not been released by the state police. Um, so that's one of the things that we're hoping to learn, you know, when and if the autopsy report comes out. Great. What, what was done in the immediate investigation? Well, again, the state for obvious reasons has not released a lot of information. I know a number of his friends were talked to and, um, you know, I'm sure the routine, uh, was followed, um, but we don't at this point have any record of that from what they've done, uh, and I don't anticipate getting that, obviously, from them. Um, so we're going to have to kind of start at the beginning and, and work through it. Now, you just said for obvious reasons they haven't released that information. What are the obvious reasons? Because it's still an open investigation, and does the fact that it's from 2001 have – do they look at, I mean, is there like a, a time frame where they would probably start to release this information? And are we reaching that? If there's, you know, basic protocol would probably be not to release information because it's still considered an active investigation. They still have um, a detective from the major crime squad who's assigned to it and he's still working. And I, I've, I've spoken to him and um, they, are not in the habit of releasing um, investigative details prior to uh, certainly a, an arrest being made. Um, you know, that it does make it difficult for private investigators to come in because you don't know what's been done, who's been talked to, who hasn't, who's been cleared, who the suspect is. You kind of have to develop that yourself. Sometimes that's a good thing because, you, you know, you, you follow leads that perhaps they didn't or, um, gave up on or cleared and, you know, you maybe come up with some different information or whatever. So it's not always a negative to start from scratch. 
Okay, yeah, that's a that's a really good way to look at it. I always just imagine um, someone like yourself. How long were you in law enforcement? 35 years, and then I retired, and then twice I've been back as interim chief for college department, so off and on, 30, over 35 I see, years. I always anyway. imagine somebody like you, over 35 years in law enforcement, you could just walk into the major crime unit and be like, hey, I'm Lou, give me what you got. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, you're either in or you're out. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're out, um, you're out. You know, I won't, I will say this, Vermont with Brianna's case in particular has been extremely cooperative with, with the private, with us. Okay. And, um, so, yeah, and I'm sure that plays a role in it. Um, but you know, they, the investigators may want to do one thing and maybe, you know, the department policy is something different so that they can't be violating department policy, no matter what they perhaps would like to do. I think it can be frustrating, you know, for a private investigator. It can be frustrating for them, too. So this is uh, considered a solvable case, I take it. That's one of the attractive things about it. I think, um, yeah, it's solvable. I mean, we're we're looking at, again, a town of 1,100 people. His circle of associates was not uh, huge. And it's not – it's not like a city where you could have a random killer that, you know, was had no association with him. So you, you couldn't, you know, you'd have to be lost to find this house if you didn't know it was there. And so, the, you know, the chances of an outsider doing it are, are, are almost negligible, um, which narrows it down considerably, I would imagine. Again, I haven't really investigated. But, and while I think of it, that's just something I like to point out, um, it's unusual in these cases for us to be doing this at the start of the investigation and not after it's been investigated. And I think we talked about that. It's one of the unique things about this particular podcast is we haven't really done a lot of work on it. haven't done any work on it yet. So we're kind of bringing in the public at the, at the start rather than the middle or the end. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at with the whole template idea of private investigations for the missing. A case comes to us and then we use this platform to get the word out there. And this is a really unique situation. This is a, almost a, a perfect uh, storm of situation. You have a case where it's not, not so old where you have to worry about interviewing people that, that might not be with us anymore, for example. And you get the opportunity to start from scratch and solicit the public's information and any public knowledge that's out there. Uh, I think that's really important. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, and I, the chances of the case not having someone out there who knows what happened are slim, I think. I think someone knows, I guess, a better yeah. way to put it. I think the information is out there, and they're either reluctant to come forward for one of a number of reasons, perhaps, you know, Safety, perhaps, uh, you know, their involvement in the crime, perhaps their relationship with the person who may have committed it, you know, whatever. But as I think we've discussed before, one advantage, if there is any, of doing a cold case is things change. In 20 years, uh, allegiances change. People find religion. People, you know, uh, people have a different perspective on things. They maybe change their lifestyle where they're no longer involved in uh, certain criminal activity or whatever. So, in that sense, sometimes your, your time is an ally instead of an enemy. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right. So what are the first steps then in investigating the case? Uh, do a podcast. <laughs> this Perfect. is it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's getting the information out there. And, you know, we put up a Facebook page. Uh, we posted it a couple of sites. Certainly this podcast was one of the first things I wanted to get done so that we could get the word out there that, hey, we're active. We're looking at this. Um, you know, we're not the police. If you have information, you come to us. If you have, you know, a reluctance to speak to the authority, which which many people do, um, understandably, um, you know, talk to us. And, um, you know, let's hope that, that the publicity generally will stimulate um, conversation and that conversation can very well stimulate um, a lead. Uh, I'd like to do at some point a call in campaign like we did initially in Brianna's case. And that generated about 20 leads. None of them materialized. Um, but uh, again, the publicity was great for the case. It, it generated interest. And, um, um, you know, since that time, we have gotten leads that, that may very well lead to something. So it's all um, it's all kind of a domino effect, I think. Any uh, family members, any friends that you can speak to uh, in regards to Dean Webster? Yeah, he actually had a number of brothers and sisters. Um, I've only spoken with one, and that's the one that we're, well, actually, I've spoken to her, his father also, but his sister Sandy is uh, my main contact, and she's kind of like, um, I guess I'd call her the client. She's the one that we're, uh, we're going to clear things with and we're going to answer to and, and everything. She's been extremely cooperative. She sent a number of photographs, I think, which I think I may have forwarded to you, uh, of him growing up fishing, hunting, you know, uh, whatever. And um, you kind of get a, an idea of his personality just by looking at the pictures while he's smiling, you know, enjoying what he's doing, etc. So she's been my main contact. He does have other sisters that I've reached out to and um, am either haven't yet made contact with or have made contact and haven't had an opportunity to speak to him yet. Um, I did speak to her, his father, a very, very nice man. Um, I feel so bad for him. I, I think he's 80, 81. And, um, you know, as often with parents, you, you lose a child before, you know, you don't want your children to die before you do. When you lose one under circumstances like this and don't have any answers, uh, it's something that, that you carry with you. And, you know, I'd really like to um, have him be able to, to clear that before he passes, if, if at all possible. Any um, wife or any girlfriend involved? Um, nothing. Is, he, he definitely wasn't married. Um, there's been you know, talk of a girl that he's dated, but no one, I don't think he had any uh, serious relationship at the time or any fiance at the time. At least, again, I'm at the, in the baby step stages of the investigation. So a lot of these things I, I don't know yet, honestly. I haven't haven't done anything on the case. It was just not only till last week that we got the paperwork signed and, and really got to go ahead to go for it. So I haven't really done anything on it yet. I wanted to get this podcast done 
get the Facebook page running before we did too much. Great. And is a uh, freedom of information request one of the first things that you're going to do? Probably not. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the valid reasons for not uh, replying to a, a FOIA is uh, the fact that it's an active criminal investigation. So um, I don't know what I would ask for <laughs> that is not going to get that response. And so at this point, I have no intentions of it. I have I have made arrangements for the autopsy, not through FOIA, but the family's entitled to a copy. They've never gotten one. Um, so that's one thing her father, his father, rather, is um, taking care of for me. He's requested it. So that'll be the first step. But uh, I've promised um, not only he, but the state police that that would be confidential. Is that something that's uncommon or is that pretty common? to not have the family members have access to the autopsy report? Well, the family members are entitled to it, but that's it. It's not public info. And in many times, there's a good reason why, um, you know, when you're conducting an investigation, particularly a homicide investigation, one thing you have to be cognizant of is the fact that people falsely confess sometimes. Um or that if if you do have the perpetrator and he has confessed, you want to verify that that is in fact him, because an uncooperated confession is is not enough to convict someone. So by withholding information relative to the scene, relative to perhaps the autopsy or, or the condition or perhaps the weapon used or any type of information that only the person who committed the crime would know um, is common. Uh, and that way you can weed out false confessions or verify a, um, a true confession. And I know you said that there was no information or you haven't found the information on what caliber the uh, the bullets were. But do you know how many times he was shot? Not for certain. No. Not sure how I know this or where I heard this. It could have been a rumor that, you know, just someone perpetuated. It was three times. We shot three times. But I, I you know, I, I don't want to say that for sure because I don't know that that's a fact. That's just what um, what was said. I see here in an article from WCAX.com, it says that the deadly weapon used was not a hunting weapon and there were multiple shots and the killer was close, under 50 feet away, and uh, Dean was facing these shots, I believe, as well. Yeah, that's what the news report says. I mean, it may very well be the case, but, um, you know, multiple, what's multiple? It's more than one, right? Yep. So other than the fact that um, he was shot multiple times, I don't know that that tells you a heck of a lot. From that same article, it's interesting that they mention Vermont's rifle season had just a uh, rifle hunting season had just begun. Right. And, but this wasn't an accident because this was not a hunting. Yeah. That's what they say. And I don't know. So that, you know, it doesn't tell me much I, without knowing the caliber, but you know, normally speaking, a hunting accident doesn't involve three shots either or multiple shots, <laughs> uh, not from close up. Right. So uh, yeah. And I, but I think that's probably, you know, looking back at the time, that was probably speculation. Well, it was deer season. No, he's up in the woods, a lot of deer. Maybe somebody shot him accidentally. So they probably want to put that to bed right away. And But, you know, it's important to note that 
it was deer season so that uh, shots heard by anyone would be disregarded. Right. You wouldn't pay any attention at all to um, in that area to, to gunshots in that in that wooded area like that. You also said that you spoke to his father, who's a really nice guy, and you want to try to get some closure for him. I mean, it's not really closure. It's just sort of an answer for him because there's no way you're bringing his son back. But um, how do you even uh, introduce that conversation to somebody when you call them? How do you how do you introduce yourself and how do you open up that that topic for them? You know, it's going to be painful, right? Yes. Um, and it's, it's a difficult call and, you know, as a long time law enforcement officer, the, the worst call that you have to do is the one at two o'clock in the morning to knock on someone's door and tell them that their son or daughter is not, um, not coming home anymore. Um, and this, you know, isn't quite as bad as that, but it, it it's always a difficult topic, I guess, because you never know how the person is going to react. In this case, I I called him, I told him who I was, and I knew from talking to his daughter that he was very interested in finding out who who did it to his son. So I, I knew that would that would be um, made for a positive introduction anyways, as opposed to someone who maybe just wanted to put it behind them and not, not think of it. Um, and there are people like that who who you know, their way of dealing with things are to either pretend they didn't happen or try and forget that they happened. Sure. But but I knew going in that, that he was receptive to the investigation. So uh, once I explained to him who I was and everything, and I, and I think the biggest problem people have is, uh, and I can understand this, you call up and you say, hey, I'm so-and-so and uh, we're going to do this for nothing. Their immediate reaction is, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so, what kind of scam is this? Um, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so it sometimes takes convincing that, hey, uh, you know, this is the real deal. We're not looking for anything. We're not looking for any money. We're not looking for any recognition. All we want to do is try and help. Um, and that's the, the mission of the nonprofit. And that's what we're here for. And we obviously aren't guaranteeing anything because realistically, the chances of solving cold cases is not real high. Um, but if you don't try, <laughs> they're not existent. And do the Websters believe they know who did it? Sandy's the only one I really had conversation with. And um I, I don't believe she she does. I don't believe she has any firm opinions. Now, we haven't really spoken. You know, it's very difficult trying to interview somebody under these conditions on the telephone. Um, you know, normal conditions, I drive up there and sit down. We'd have a coffee and we'd talk for an hour, an hour and a half. Um, but with this whole situation the way it is with the COVID and everything, it's everything has to be done either online or on the phone, which makes it a little more, um, more difficult. So, I'll um, talk to her again. In fact, I've invited her to join us, <laughs> if that's okay with you guys, um, next podcast. Of course. On the case. And she said she'd be happy to do that if it would help. So, um, you know, maybe uh, by that time we can have a conversation, you can ask her that question yourself. Okay, great. And uh, do you know if there's any piece of evidence or 
something like that that investigators are looking for, like something specific. Like I know in more Murray's case, we say, you know, her keys and her wallet is, have never been found. So obviously if you come across that, um, you know, make a call. Is there anything like that that we know of just the murder weapon? Well, certainly the weapon if, if they have – and again, I don't know what they have because I have not seen their report. I haven't, um, they haven't discussed it with me. Are there shell casings? I don't know. Uh, have they recovered uh, the bullet? I, I don't know. Without the shell casings or the, uh, the bullet, uh, even the firearm is going to be a big help. But assumably they've, they've recovered some of that evidence. Do they have tire tracks? I don't know. You know, was anything missing? Well, you know, was his wallet there? I, I'm not sure. You know, until we get the answers to some of those questions, I, I don't know what evidence they'd be looking for. Other than, of course, A, a witness who, who may or may not exist, or B, the firearm. But there could be foot impressions. There could be tire impressions. Of course, 20 years later, the value of a tire impression or foot impression is probably not very good. You know, so I, I can't answer that because I don't know. I don't have that knowledge. Is there anything to the report? You had sent us a document with your notes and said there was an unconfirmed report that he may have had a grow operation in his house and he was selling marijuana. That's been mentioned. I haven't verified that, but that was mentioned. It certainly might lead to a motive. I mean, if if looking at what he says or what they, his friends say or his, his family says about his personality, doesn't sound like he had any enemies. It doesn't sound like there was any romantic involvement with, with anyone that would, would lead to this, a jealousy or anything like that. So I don't believe he had any disputes with anyone, including neighbors. Uh, so you try and rule out the motives. And if, in fact, he was involved in some type of narcotic activity, that certainly could be a motive that he was the subject of a drug rip uh, or a disagreement over a drug sale or something along those lines. So. That's a possibility. But again, I haven't truly verified that that's the case. There's also the well driller who he paid $1,000 to to drill a well at, on his property uh, as well. And that was right around the same time. And I know you're still in the very early stages, but has anyone mentioned anything about this well driller maybe going back for more money? No, I don't. I don't believe that was the that would even be in a. a um, possibility. I, I, he was drilling a neighbor's well and, and Dean needed a well drilled and went down and they made a deal. He paid him $1,000 cash. That, now to me, that's of interest because not many people walk around with $1,000 in their pocket, to, um, especially you know in the circumstances where he's out of workman's comp and everything. It's kind of lends credence to perhaps the narcotic angle. I don't think the, the well driller, from what, I, from what I understand, would be anywhere near you know, a suspect or anything like that. They had settled the price, and that was the, that was the end of that. So, do you have a specific address for him on Sky Hollow Road? I think it'd be interesting to check that out on like Google Earth or something. I know which house it is. I, I in the interest of privacy, because his family members live there now, I, I'd rather not publicize. You don't want to put you don't want to put an address out there to the public for anyone to just go and visit. <laughs> uh, no, we don't want to wind up like the poor people that live near. Uh, uh, Mara Murray's uh, tree. There's only like six, seven houses on a whole location. So, but I, I don't even know if they have house numbers. To be honest with you, <laughs> right. it's pretty rural. 
So what is next then after, uh, after the podcast? You're, uh, you're going to dig in? Yeah, I think we're going to start talking. I want to talk to a couple of the family members, get a little more background on Dean. Um, I have, like I said, the person who brought this to my attention did a lot of work on it and um, did, did a pretty good job and then kind of got to a stone wall. But there's a number of people that have not been talked to that should be talked to. Um, so I'll probably try and start that. But, I, you know, usually in these cases, I like to do is get, learn as much about the case as I can before I start going and talking to people because, you know, you want to know what you're talking about, I guess. And um, I'm kind of – so I'm getting to the stage now where I'm feeling comfortable with the sequence of events and who is who. And But there are some definitely some individuals that um, I'd like to interview – some have been interviewed already by the uh, VSP and some um, may or not have been. I don't know. And where is the VSP at right now? You said that they had an investigator assigned to it? Yes, they do. One of the, one of the major crime unit uh, sergeants is uh, assigned to the case and he's, um, you know, he's done work on it. I, it's obviously not... Um, I wouldn't say a priority because other cases take precedence. Fresh cases have to be worked while they're fresh. So I, you know, I think he does this when he can, and I think he's done a good job on it uh, from what I understand. I, again, I don't know the particulars, but I do know it's um, active. And, I, and one of the reasons I know that is because I, even before I even heard about this case, uh, we were at another meeting on Brianna's case and uh, this case came up in general and there was just some, conversation between two of them about, you know, the fact that they were, they were still actively involved in the case. This is before I had even heard of it. So, you know, I know they are, they are actively still interested in this. Again, how much time they're able to afford to, to devote to it. They're, they're, they have a big caseload and there um, is not a lot of them. And um, they have a lot of, a lot of other priorities, I guess. And, you know, to, to, to spend time on a 20 year old case when you have, new stuff coming in is it doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes well is there anything else you'd like to put out there um just you know the obvious if anybody's got any information we'd love to hear it again there's a uh an email account we've set up just for this it's uh who killed dean at gmail.com uh there's a facebook page out there uh the family has one and um we have one set up also if anybody has any information, we'd, we'd love to hear it, no matter how trivial or uh, perhaps, you know, even if they've told someone it before. We've run into that before in other cases where information slipped through the cracks. Uh, so it sometimes doesn't hurt to um, have a fresh set of eyes look at it. Great. Would you recommend anybody reaching out to investigationsforthemissing.org to submit a tip? They certainly could um, because they channel that to whoever is investigating the crime. So they could, you know, they could just do it there. They could do it through the Who Killed Dean Gmail account or um, the Vermont State Police have a tip line. And certainly if they feel comfortable talking to the state police, they, then that's uh, that's good, too. The, the, the key here is solving the case, not who solves the case. <laughs>